Let's pray. God, as we come to you and open up your word, we ask that you would speak to us now. We pray that you would give attention from our eyes to your goodness that we can see through your text and and by the preaching that we might be hearing your word such that it transforms our hearts to the point where it changes the way we live, we hope, and we rest. Pray that you would keep me from error, and that all of us would be stirred towards greater affection of your good name. Amen. Well, if you have a copy of the Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. I'll be going through chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a couple in the chair backs in front of you on one of the rows. Uh, If you don't have a Bible at all, just take that. We would love to give that to you as a gift from us to you. And if you don't know how to read it, maybe stick around afterwards, and we would love to talk to you about what it means and how it can be read and why we focus so much of our attention to it. Colossians 1, 24-29 says this, Paul writing under the inspiration of God, writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Well, in the British Library in England, in London, rests the National Library for the United Kingdom, where the largest national library in the world, by number of volumes, opens up its doors to millions of people every year, where an estimated 170 to 200 million books are just waiting to be read, though some not allowed to touch. And one book in particular caught my eye when I was there a couple of years ago with friends. This giant book sat before me, open to a specific part, and this book actually cost one man his life just to write. When people think of how the Reformation came about, they might think of people like John Calvin or Martin Luther or Zwingli, but there was once a man named William Tyndale who thought that every person in England ought to be able to read the Bible in their own language. And the king hated this. At the root of his contagious passion was something of great power where he saw the Word of God not only good and great, but having a great power to change people and the world forever. And so God certainly did a work and this man and many others like him. This power wasn't one of knowledge. It wasn't one of a position of authority. It wasn't one of good news about how you could be a better person, but rather it was the very power of God that just opens up the heart and changes the soul forever. Now one thing that is easily overlooked of what took place five, six hundred years ago is how men like William Tyndale, where these men were looking at one thing, 
They were talking about one thing. They were complaining to authorities about one thing. And this was fueling their fire like nothing else around them. Over six centuries ago, these glorious truths were not being widespread. It was impossible to do what we are doing today. Gathering together and hearing God's Word read in our own tongue. What I'm saying is the Word of God originally written in Hebrew and Greek was not allowed to be translated into anything other than the Vulgate Latin and could only be read by officers of the Church of Rome. So you couldn't go to a bookstore or Amazon and buy an ESV or an NASB or any kind of S or B or anything. You weren't allowed to understand it. It was to be kept from you because only people of certain power and certain prestige and certain honor were ever allowed to open the book and tell you how you are supposed to live. Saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, would get you thrown in jail. Saying, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, they would cut out your eyes so you couldn't read it. Now when you think of Ephesians 5, verse 25-27, through 27, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, wrote, The Lord is daily smoothing its wrinkles and wiping away its spots. Hence it follows that its holiness is not yet perfect, and the holiness of the church makes daily progress. Even though they are not perfect, they are marching towards the one who is. And so with this same understanding, with this love and desire for Christ's bride, William Tyndale was a renowned man in his own intellect, but the thing that he is most known for now was simply taking the words that were given to the apostles and writing them in modern English. Now, was he a lunatic, like people thought the Reformers were? We can all think of stories of friends or family or even ourselves when we spend time meditating on Scripture, dieting on the truths that God has revealed in His Word. We became slowly but surely more like Him to the point where we want other people to read what we read, to where we become those people, those people at the coffee shop who say, look at what I just read. Isn't it rich and powerful? Our growth towards holiness is not bound by following another Christian on Twitter or coming to church and hearing from a certain person or even having a great collection of spiritual thoughts about who God is, but rather our growth in holiness and in godliness is directly impacted by where we place our eyes and how it changes our souls. Now, William Tyndale's work cost him his life his daily battle of learning languages, learning language patterns, getting sentences, sentences that would not only attract the nuance of the farmer in the field, but also the academic in the tower, took really hard work. And it was exhausting. And it was costly to the point where it actually caused him to suffer a death. But it was worth it. Not just because it was an honorable thing to do, but because it was necessary for people to hear the good news. And so with that in mind, we encounter our text this morning, seeing Paul's words where he is suffering for the sake of the church. 
And there are many things in this passage that we could bring out or allow to raise to the top. And, and I'm, often to, I'm often tempted to abhor any sermon that, that causes any sort of desire to be a leadership lesson to the church. I despise leadership quality sermons. But one of the benefits of preaching expositionally is sometimes you just come to a paragraph that talks a lot about how Christians are called to lead other Christians as they march towards Zion. So I think in this text, we see marks of great and deep spiritual leadership. The first mark is this. Spiritual leaders rejoice in their suffering. Spiritual leaders are people who are known who are rejoicing in their suffering. Let me read to you from verses 24 through through 25. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, because we have special guests here this morning, imagine yourself riding on a motorcycle, and everything's perfect. The wind is flowing in your hair. There's no one else on the road. The sun is in the right spot. It's not hot. It's not cold. Somehow, now I've never ridden on a motorcycle. I do not know how you would listen to the radio, but you can listen to the radio, and it's your favorite song. And you're just going mile after mile towards the sunset. Now, many of you might be tempted to think that that is what the Christian walk is like. But I bet all of you who are Christians could remind other Christians that it does not look like that. But that does not take away the sweetness from it. Paul was suffering, we see in this text. Now, if there's anything to be said about Paul, other than his passion for Christ and his desire for the church to be built up, he was really good at suffering. Five times he was whipped with 39 lashes. Beaten with rods and stones other times. He was shipwrecked, directly related to his pursuit of the gospel going out, not once, not twice, but three times. He should stop sailing. It's like Tom Hanks getting on a plane. Don't fly with that guy. Don't sail with Paul. He had sleepless nights, he said, thinking about the church and other people. And oftentimes he wrote of how he was hungry and thirsty, and he just wanted someone to bring him a coat. Paul wasn't having fun because of the journey that he was on, but he was filled with joy. He said that he was rejoicing because of the destination that he knew that he was on, and he was eager for other people to be on as well, both for him and for the people he was preaching to. He was rejoicing in his suffering. And and the reason why suffering was coming on Paul was, was because implicitly and explicitly the gospel. Like I talked about last week, the gospel is the sweetest thing that you can hear and also the most offensive thing you can tell people because at the root of the gospel, we all have to acknowledge that we are not good people. Now, I've been to fourth grade. My teacher told me that I was special. We even sang songs about it, how special we were. And at the root of the gospel, it talks to us right in the face and says, you are not special. In fact, you are the problem. And it's someone outside of yourself who is special that you need to cling on to. And when Paul is going after people and saying this message and then getting other people to say this message, it is offensive and people hate him for it. And so he's bearing affliction and suffering. And this was his God-given purpose to carry out. He writes this in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you 
to make the Word of God fully known. Now this idea of him being a minister it would be another way to write that he is the lowest ranking rower on a ship. He's a servant of the church. He's a servant of your family. The, the idea of servant leadership here is one of Paul actually doing the hard work. He's the table waiter. You ask for a water, and he's the one that goes and gets the water. He's a servant called out by God. He's a purposeful provider. Servanthood for the sake of making the word more fully known, more fully understood, more fully grasped to the point where he is writing to people again and again, clarifying what the truth of God really means. Now, what was his suffering like? Well, currently he was imprisoned because of the gospel, and it wasn't an isolated thing. It happened to him often, and he was on his way to a certain place, but he was imprisoned here, much like his past sufferings. Now, you would be tempted to either do two things at this point in the Scriptures. Either one, to say, I never suffer like Paul. I've never been to jail for the sake of the Gospel. No one's thrown anything at me, much less a stone the size of my head, in order to kill me. Or you might think the opposite, where everything that happens in your life is suffering. I wonder what contextually this might look like in our church, where you might be a kid in school, junior high, high school, fourth grade, and you actually say out loud that you believe the things that are written in this Bible. And people ostracize you, or they call you stupid, or ignorant, and they don't invite you places, and they are rude to you, or they bully you. That's true suffering. No one should be treated like that for any reason, and here you might see yourself as suffering, much like Paul, and I think you are. Or maybe, maybe you're a parent raising your kid a certain way, according to the testimonies of the Scriptures where you do things like aim to control your child or discipline your child or, or teach your child the things of the Scriptures, not just letting your child do anything he wants and, well, whatever, you know, go, be and let be, four-year-old. Sure, that's a street, but you'll learn. So you might be a parent who is ridiculed because you are raising your child a certain way to where other parents look at you and they mock you, they ridicule you. They tell their kids how, how weird you are. Or, or even your own family, when you're invited to a family event, and they go, well, you can sit with the kids' table. Or many of you might be alone in your own marriage, where you're even showing up here by yourself. Because your spouse might be a good person, but they just don't believe with the tenacity that you believe or they don't even believe in the same way or the same thing that you believe and it and it actually does relationally cost you in your marriage to stand up and say i believe that jesus came to die for sinners and he rose from the dead and he ascended and sits on the throne in heaven and your spouse looks at you and says well that's good for you but i'm not a part of it and so you see families all around you. During the greeting time, everyone's talking to other people and you might stand or sit alone and go, I wish someone would read the Bible with me. I wish there was some kind of post-it note on the refrigerator that had a Bible verse. Choosing the path that is right but hard is always better than choosing the path that is easy but wrong. And so when we look at Paul's suffering for the sake of the gospel, we see it as something that he is rejoicing in. The assumption here is that Christian leaders suffer. Spiritual leaders in the family or at work or at home, spiritual leaders will certainly suffer. 
Now he also says that he is doing this for what is lacking in Christ's affliction. He says in 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up what is behind the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Now that's one of those Pauline sentences that sticks out to us because we read it and we go, wait a minute, what, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? I thought he actually said on the cross that it is finished. Let me try to see if I can unscrew this for you. What he's really saying is not that Christ's atonement was inadequate, so I, Paul, have to bear your sins, but what he's actually saying is I fill up in me what is left of the afflictions of Christ. I rejoice in my suffering, and now it's my turn to have affliction brought on me just as it was brought on Christ. Christ is not here anymore. He ascended into the heavens. And so as people are attacking His name, as people are attacking His kingdom, their arrows or their bullets now land on Christians. And what Paul is saying, that it is His turn at the plate. When Jesus was on earth, they persecuted Him up until the point where they actually killed Him. And the world was not through persecuting Him until He ascended to heaven. I heard it once in a movie where mob bosses were going after people who owed them debt, that they would kill people and then they would actually go to work on them. They would tear down their whole family. They would tear down their namesake. They would go after they're gone from the earth. They would keep going after and bearing affliction on them. And here Paul is saying, it's my turn. And I count it a joy. Because I realize what has been done to me by the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ And now I want to step in. Where Paul is saying that he has joy in the suffering of the blows that were meant for Christ who suffered the blows that should have been meant for him. He is filling up in his body what remains of the world's persecution of Jesus. So it's staggering to think and to recognize that this man who is totally, you could say, in in like an ABC News special, he's turned his life around. And now he's eager almost and rejoicing, certainly, in bearing the sufferings of others for Christ's name's sake. He says elsewhere that I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. So he took on what was meant for Jesus. So I think here, spiritual leaders should be known as being misunderstood. Spiritual leaders will be misquoted or misrepresented when they're quoting the Bible or representing Jesus. Many will be threatened or accused, or ostracized, looked down on. If you want evidence of what happens to those who follow Jesus, I would just encourage you to download, look at, or just Google Fox's Book of Martyrs, where this historian accounts again and again and again, almost by a decade's sake, of all of those who were slain because of their leadership in the Christian community. And Paul says it's all done for the sake of the church, for the building up of the body. That there's always a price, and there's always suffering, and if the body is to be built up, then it will be costly. Now some of you, I think, and just examining this passage, some of you should be more deeply involved in ministry. God has placed you in this church. God has never called people out of the wilderness just to be spectators of the kingdom. But know that when you're walking into that spiritual leadership place that it will be costly maybe it is a future of pastoring vocationally or 
non-vocationally, or maybe it's to be a deacon, or visiting the sick, or calling out to the elderly, or coming early, or staying late, just to pray and talk with others about what the Lord is doing in their lives. And how this text is an example of, or to us, where we ought to be more outwardly focused than we naturally are. And we should be more kingdom focused than we naturally desire. He was showing what spiritual leadership looks like, and he does that first by rejoicing in his suffering. Second, he shows what spiritual leadership looks like by reveling in the mystery of the good news. He's reveling in the mystery. Look with your eyes at verse 26. To make the world, to make the word of God fully known, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It seems like a long, cool, bumper sticker, ongoing sentence. Here, mystery defined is is Paul's attack at what the Gnostics in this age were using, where they were saying that, that the greatest attempt of man is just becoming connected with the mystery that's out there. And you might listen to that and go, yeah, but what does that mean? And that's the whole point. None of us know what it means. I heard someone on a a news talk, you know, one of those Sunday, I just lost it, Sunday politics shows, where they were talking about their own faith. And they're like, I just connected with the Christian faith because of the mystery of it. And you go, that doesn't mean anything. I connect with my postman because of the mystery of mail. No, that doesn't mean anything. But here, what Paul is doing is he's taking their word of overusing the identity of a mystery and he's changing the definition of it by putting it into a place where they can understand. The word mystery refers to something that was previously hidden and is now revealed. This definition is is coming out of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul says that the mystery was not made known to other generations of the sons of men, as it has now been revealed in His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. The mystery involves the revelation of something that was previously obscure. And now it's being revealed. Now the word mystery is used 28 times in the New Testament. It's only used a couple of times in the Old Testament. Most specifically in Daniel 2. Where after God reveals to Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar's dream, so a man named Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, he went to Daniel and he said, what does this dream mean? So God reveals to Daniel what this dream means. And it meant that a foretold four successive kingdoms culminating in the kingdom of God will come down. Daniel tells the king there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar that what will be in the latter days will surely come. So there, the revelation of the mystery refers to the hidden interpretation of the king's dream. And what this allows us to do is for centuries after this, no one fully understood or grasped what this fully meant. And here, what Paul is instructing the church to do is to to read the Scripture through the lens of Christ. Where when we read the Scripture through the lens of Christ, we see that the culmination of this mystery is where the Jews and the Gentiles would be fused together on a footing of complete equality by means of corporate identification in Jesus the Messiah. What that means for Paul and his people is he is going to people who have naturally divided themselves into different pockets of the church. And he's saying you will be tempted by diversifying yourself 
or, or having certain rank and order within the church. But you need to remember that Christ died for his whole church. God himself, in the person of Christ, will be directly and personally present in the lives of his people, and his presence assures them of a future life with him when he returns. And he's saying that Christ doesn't reside only in believing Jews, but also in believing Gentiles. So it's with this understanding or this revelation of mystery that gives fuel to Paul's passion when he goes to non-Jewish people, to the Gentiles, and preaches them the gospel. And they wreak havoc on him and others when the gospel goes out because once, what was once hidden is now revealed. What was previously hidden in the Gentiles' equal status in the people of God, the Old Testament could be read to say that the Gentiles will be members of the people of God, but they would be subordinate to the Jews. And what Paul is saying that no, the fulfillment of salvation history has come to where now Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and fellow shares of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Imagine you have a blended family. And one side of the family is super rich, right? So you have, let's just say you have a mom, and she has three kids, and mom marries another dad, and he has two kids. Their understanding would be mom gets all the money, and maybe there will be some scraps left over for the new dad and his two kids. But what is being revealed here is that this infusion or this fused community of God, all of them inherit the riches of the glory of God. Now, if you've been on that dad's side, I didn't think through this illustration, but I'm going to keep going with it. If you were on this dad's side, you might think that all of your life you are made or called to be a stepbrother. Or that that stepdad is not really a dad to those kids. He's just living in the house. Isn't that nice of that woman to let him live in the house? But the marriage of Christ and His church tells all of God's people that all of the riches of the heavens belong to all of God's people. And so it's with that fuel and that passion that Paul writes to them and he revels in this mystery. Always outsiders. Now they are brought in. Now where I think this hits home in the context of EMB is that we are often tempted, and I'm speaking of myself here as well, we are often tempted to assume the gospel rather than reveling in it. You know, have you ever been to a really cool house? And you walk into a cool house, and you just walk into the opening, and you're like, this is the nicest entryway I've ever seen in my life. There's gold everywhere. You know, there's marble everywhere. Even the wood is not what you would buy at Lowe's. And the owner of the house goes, oh, yeah, that's fine. Come on into the kitchen. And you're like, whoa, 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 wait. Let's talk about the entryway more. The understanding of the gospel is something that can never be assumed because it is always so rich. It's something that when we keep our gaze on it, we are never unsatisfied about it. When you read Colossians verses 15 through 20, you could get to the end of verse 20 and start over at verse 15 and then get to the end of verse 20 and start over at verse 15 because you're looking at the glorious risen Savior and you go, I don't want to read anything else. That's good enough for me. And what Paul is saying is he is wanting them to be reminded again and again and again to focus on the one 
who this mystery points to. Spiritual leadership looks like focusing on the right man. Spiritual leadership doesn't always mean that you have the right ideas or you can write the leadership lectures or, or you might be the one who funds everything that happens, but true spiritual leadership looks like focusing on the right man and having every aspect of your work revolve around him. How great are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Paul was continually reveling in the mystery. When you think of Paul's biography, where he came from or what he was changed into, when you think of your biography and what God saved you from and placed you into. I remember telling someone, someone, Brooke's grandma, I remember telling Brooke's grandma about my dad's conversion story. My dad has a decently cool conversion story. And I always say my dad was converted when he was like 22 or 23 years old. I remember Brooke's grandma, nicely, nothing wrong with what he was, what was he converted from? Like maybe he was a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or anything. And I was like, he was converted from paganism. Like he was converted from ungodliness and and restored and brought into God's marvelous light. And that's what all of our bios are. Christ's accomplishment is staggering. You know, there are a few times in your own life where you look back and with pure surety, you can say that, man, I did something awesome there. It was a test that you did or a season of life where you just kept going after it and going after it and you won something or you accomplished something or someone said yes. But Christian, remind yourself of the work of the established king of the universe where on your behalf the most violent expression of God's wrath and justice was placed on him at the cross. If ever a person had room to complain for injustice, it was Jesus. R.C. Sproul mockingly talks about people who call out and say, why do bad things happen to good people? R.C. Sproul responds, that only happened once. Only one time did bad things happen to a good person. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. And when we focus our hearts on the cost of this expression of reconciling work, we should be continually stunned at the reality of his godliness and glory. So spiritual leaders revel in the glory of this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this has an outward effect as well. Not just an inward effect of what we revel in, but the spiritual leader rejoices in their suffering, revels in the mystery of the revealed Christ, but also to point to where he or she is. A spiritual leader is one who is known for recounting, thirdly, to everyone. Spiritual leader is one who is known for recounting to everyone the truths of God. Look at verse 28. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, there are various ways to read and understand any text of Scripture. You know, how does it begin and how does it end? We call those the bookends of interpretation. What are the verbs? Where are the nouns? What are they saying in the right order? What does the text implicitly tell the reader to do or think or explicitly tell the reader to do or think? How does it follow what's before or what's after its instruction? But here, one of the ways that you can read and interpret Scripture is look for words that are repeated. Everyone. In Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The glorious nature and work of Jesus is for everyone to hear, is for everyone to be instructed by, 
and be submitted to. There are no ranks of ears in the Christian church. There are no special rooms for those with more knowledge or wanting to hear something exclusive. Like you've earned the rank of eagle in the church of Christ and now we have even gooder news for you. The good news of Jesus is the only divisive word in the church. It separates the sheep and the goats. As it's good news and bad news. But everyone should hear it. Everyone should receive it. Everyone can receive it. And so he writes acknowledging that everyone should be taught. And the way that this is done is by, it says in the text, proclaiming. To declare. To announce boldly. To proclaim. The means of the Gospel going out is proclamation. I once was asked in an ordination exam by people who were evaluating my ability to minister in Christ's church, which I think is really good for people to do so that not just anyone can get up before a church and declare the things of Scripture. They said, what is the point of a sermon? And I've studied that. And I've had those flashcards. And I remember being able to say the role and goal of the sermon is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ for everyone to hear. And they said, well, how will people hear then if it's just proclamation? Paul answers that in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Preaching the good news for a spiritual leader is through the means of proclamation. The church is built on the Gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed to everyone who can hear. God's truth fills our minds as it's proclaimed. It is transforming our hearts as it's proclaimed. And it affects our tangible ways and works as it's proclaimed. This is why I always get, and not to knock anyone, but this is why I always get really annoyed when people talk about this time in the Christian service as just a Bible study. No, it's not. It's a proclamation, a heralding of God's truth. This isn't a TED Talk. It's not a lesson. It is simply a proclamation of holding up God's Word and saying this is what it means. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the late preacher in London, says that preaching is the attempt of bringing heaven down so that little people can look inside. Spiritual leaders proclaim the truth of Christ through warning and teaching admonishing, he says, implying that errors need to be corrected. And how many of us would ever say that we've gone to many sermons and we realize like, oh, I'm actually an heir there. I remember living with a guy in seminary. I lived in a giant house. So there were 10 people living in this house and only three of them, three of us were in seminary and other people were in other places. And, and, and one guy kept doing this thing with another person until someone went up to him, and he was a brand new Christian. I've been a Christian for like two months. And someone went up to him and said, hey, you should, stop, you should stop sleeping with your girlfriend. And he goes, what are you talking about? And he, so he went on to explain of what marriage is and how to, how to treat women and how to be treating yourself as a man and what that means in its appropriate place. And he just simply said, I never knew that. So the Word of God needs to be taught because we are reminded that, that we were naturally on our way to do wrong things. So we are admonished. And we are taught. Teaching means an activity that needs to be distinguished from admonishing, both of which are intimately related to the act of proclamation. 
it's almost like Paul is giving examples of what proclamation means. What does it mean to preach to people or to proclaim to people the word? It means you warn them and you guide them or you teach them. But to what end do spiritual leaders recount to everyone? To what end do spiritual leaders recount to everyone? Well, the end result is that a spiritual leader is not done proclaiming to his spiritual people until they are mature. Or a better way to translate this is until they are perfect. Paul emphasizes that this maturity is grounded in the unfolding of God's will, which can be achieved only by the act of God when the believers find themselves in final and complete union with Christ. Their responsibilities were not finished with just the conversion of men and women. So they made it their aim to present everyone perfect or everyone mature in Christ. Their concerns were for well-established and settled congregations whose members were strong in the faith. Not just to the point where you respond to the good news of Jesus and then we don't care about you anymore. We want more people who we can do that action in. It's no, no, no. Now that you've responded to Jesus, we have more to work out. I have more to work out. We have a lifelong march towards being presented without spot or blemish before a heavenly Father. A spiritual leader recounts the truth of the gospel to everyone for the sake of spiritual maturity. Now, fourth, and finally, a spiritual leader is marked by his or her running by God's grace. A spiritual leader is marked by his or her running by God's strength. Did I say grace the first time? I definitely meant strength. <laughs> running by God's strength. Verse 29, let me read it to you. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he may powerfully, that he powerfully works within me. Running here means struggling, fighting, toiling. Like an athletic struggle. Like someone who has been beating or buffeting their body during two-a-days for football. For weeks and weeks or months and months, you think of what a boxer goes through before they have a fight. Like a year in advance, they start preparing for this couple of minutes round in the ring. And it's exactly the, the mental idea that we should have in our minds when, when we struggle or when we toil, but we have to remember that we do all of this by His energy and what He powerfully works within us. To this end, Paul expands, extends, and expends all his energies in his ministry for the gospel, laboring and struggling with what he knows to be the good and better aim for every man, but knowing that he is fueled explicitly and exclusively by God himself. And this, I think, heightens and gives fuel and gives grounding for his continual submission to God's word and continual submission to God's ways. To the sufficiency of God's power, he recognizes that, that he is a part of something that is truly awesome as it influences the world. And so it continually humbles him to where he wants God's grace and power all the more because he sees of what it's doing again and again and again in his life. So to conclude, William Tyndale was different than those around him because he recognized that hell and sin and the atonement of Jesus and grace were weighty realities that he needed everyone to know and understand and in the middle of these great realities was the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and he couldn't rest, even to the point where he was fine with dying if people were able to read the truths of Scripture. 
Tyndale's life was about God being worshipped by everyone. In his reading of Scripture, the curtain was torn at the death of Jesus, and all of us can look in and see the glory of the slain lamb risen for us. He said that by faith we are saved and believing the promises of God. But how can people know these promises if they can't read or hear them? And so we see this example of a spiritual leader who rejoiced in his suffering, who reveled in the mystery, who was running by God's grace. And I forgot the third point, but I was rattling off so fast. Who was recounting for everyone all the things that God had done for them. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God might, may be complete and equipped for every good work. What drove Tyndale to sing one note all his life was the rock-solid conviction that all people were in bondage to sin, blind, dead, damned, and helpless, and that God had acted in Christ to provide salvation by grace through faith. By people freely hearing and reading of this glorious truth, the Spirit focuses their new aims on God Himself. So Tyndale was a theologian and a scholar, yes, but he was one who suffered. He was one who reveled. He was one who rejoiced in what God was doing. Ultimately, his prayers were answered. And the English were absorbed later in the translation of their own. And for centuries, the church has grown to see more and more how great God is when his truth becomes our focus. So may we, like Paul instructs us, and like others around us have encouraged us, may we love God this way. May we lead others spiritually this way. And may we be strengthened by this same power, the grace of God delivered to us in his good word. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for what you said to us centuries ago, and we are grateful for what you say to us even this day. We praise you that we could talk about you forever, and we will, and we will see you in all of your glory forever one day. But until then, we pray that you would give us courage as we lead others, that you would guide us as we spiritually aim to build up the church, and that we might submit ourselves to you for your namesake and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.